<laughs> so our story today in Acts is, um, is a kind of a strange one. Uh, the pieces that you miss in that reading are the story of uh, Judas' death. So if you want to go back and find out the details of that, you're welcome to do that later on. Um, but we heard today the story of what the disciples had to do when one of their own left. You see, Judas was one of them. We often think of Judas as being like an evil guy or a bad guy or like um, rotten to the core, really, or, you know, all these terrible words that we associate with Judas, right? He's the evil guy, the villain, right? And yet when we read the Bible, we learn that he's the villain sort of in the same way that um, Prince Hans is in Frozen, which is, he's not really a villain till the end because they had to figure out somebody to make a villain. Right? Somebody had to be the villain, and Judas isn't a bad guy until the end, until he gets in a bit of a rush, until he becomes impatient with the way that God is unraveling the kingdom. Judas isn't a bad guy so much as a bad guy. Now, they had to do something. This was a friend. This was someone who was deeply beloved to them. You know, even when they argued, Judas was part of their community, and Judas had betrayed them. So there was lots of hurt feelings. It wasn't just Jesus who Judas left. It was the people. It was the community that he was a part of. It was, um, in many ways, the people who he had lived life with for a long time. And so when he betrayed Jesus, when he chose to do what he did, he didn't just betray Jesus, he betrayed his friends. He left a hole in the center of that community. He was the treasurer of their community, so somebody who was trusted. It's not like it was just the guy on the outside that nobody ever talked to. This was the one they gave the money to. They trusted him. And so they're left after Jesus dies then with this hole it's a Jesus-shaped hole in the middle of their community, but it's a Judas-shaped hole, too. And they start getting in an argument about what they should do now that Judas is gone. What should they do now that Judas is left? Should they just stay at the 11? Should they just keep going on with the disciples who had been with Jesus and just keep going on the way they'd been going on, but now with 11 instead of 12? Or maybe should they disband? Should they go back into Judaism and, and take up their former lives. That was an option they thought about. Or they could replace Judas with a new person, but that would mean that it was a different calling. It wasn't just the disciples anymore. It was now a new person they were bringing into the fold, and that meant that leadership in that community was going to be different. So they were arguing, as they did, about the future of their community. And a lot of them wanted to stay at 11. They just thought, we'll stick with the people we got. We know how this works. We know who these 11 people are. We can trust them, I think. And some of them said, no, we, the Bible says we have to have 12. The Bible says we have to have 12. There's 120 people in our community. We have to have, 100 and, we have, to have 12 people on our leadership team. That's the rules, it's 100, one per 10 person. It's been that way forever, right? The Old Testament tells us this is how we have to do it. And Peter is in a hurry, as Peter always was, to just get on with it, to get on to whatever it was that was work that could get them out of this whatever, because he was tired of talking about it. 
It's kind of like how when we get to an hour and 15 minutes of the session meeting, you could see everyone go, <sighs> not naming names. <laughs> right? We're done. I don't care what we do. I don't care. I'm just done. <laughs> right? And I get it. Like, we just want to make the decision and move on and, and, and do something, for goodness sakes. Let's just do something. I don't care what it is at this point. And part of it is because Peter is not the most creative soul. He doesn't like it. He's a been there, done that, black and white, like, here's the rules, let's follow them, let's get over it kind of person. And they don't really know what they're doing anymore. They don't really know what the purpose is of this new group that they're going to be. So that just creates more argument, really, in the long run. So it used to be in this community that they would just go to Jesus when they needed to make a decision. It was pretty easy. They would just go to Jesus, right? They'd have an argument about something, and they would go to Jesus, and they'd say, Jesus, what should we do about sinners in our midst? What should we do about lepers? What should we do about working on the Sabbath? And Jesus just went, here you go. Here's the answer. And they didn't always like the answer they got from Jesus, but they did always listen to Jesus. There was an authority figure, someone they knew was in charge. And now they had this new group, and nobody was in charge. Who's in charge of this new group? Peter sort of appointed himself. I don't know that anybody else was on board with Peter being in charge, but he sort of appointed himself. So they had to decide, what was, this, what was going to be our criteria? What were going to be the new rules about who got to be in or out? Who was going to be the new rules about how we make decisions? What are going to be the new possibilities? What are the new boundaries for our identity as a community? And the boundaries they came up with, the criteria that they listed is impossible. Nobody could have lived up to it. They said, well, the new leader needs to be someone who was with Jesus his entire ministry, from his baptism with John until he was crucified. Now, Bible scholars, what do we remember about the baptism of John? Was there anybody else in the stream? Was there anybody else there to witness it? I don't remember Peter being there at the presence of the baptism, right? I don't remember John or James or any of the other disciples being present at the, the baptism of, with John. And so the first rule they set up for leadership in their community is one that's actually impossible for any person to fulfill. Because nobody was there. The two people who were there are dead. It's an impossible standard. And then the second rule that they set up was, well, it has to be somebody who can testify. Somebody who can witness to the life that Jesus led, who was there the whole time, who's willing to go out into the wilderness and tell people about God. Which tells you that they left Presbyterians out of the mix, right? Because out of our many blessings, one of the things that we don't do very well is go out into the wilderness and tell people about God, right? I kind of admire the people who stand at Walmart with the signs. You know, you know the ones I'm talking about, right? They stand at Walmart and they have the Jesus save signs. And part of me rolls my eyes and goes, does that really work? 
<laughs> Does anybody stop and go, you know, thank you for holding that sign up. I'm so, you know, you changed my life. That's part of my brain. And the other part of me goes, you know what? I would never in a thousand years be brave enough to do that. I never in a thousand years would be brave enough to stand on a street corner with a sign and just wait to see if anybody talked to me. And so all of us would fail step two, which is the power to go out and witness to the lost in the wilderness. And so they set up these rules, these impossible rules that no person can live up to, I think partly so they wouldn't have to pick a new person, and partly so that when whoever the new person was wasn't set up to win. Like, Matthias is not going to win. He can't live in these criteria. And maybe if they set up these rules, they'll never have to make a choice. Maybe if they set up these rules, they'll never have to make a new decision. Maybe if they set up these rules, they'll have some control over what their future looks like. Maybe, maybe, if we set up these criteria, these rules, these things with which we agree, then we'll have some sort of say, some sort of control over the future. And we'll only get the future which we like. The kind of future which is already acceptable to us because we set the rules up. If these are our criteria of what the new community is going to look like, if these are our criteria of what leadership is going to look like in this new community, then we get control over that community and the future of that community. And what they find that the only method which works is prayer. The only method that works that is prayer. The rules don't work. The limitations they set up don't work. The, the ways that they decide to use human rules to control this community, it doesn't work. The only thing that works is prayer. Now, we don't like that. Sure, we, we give voice to prayer. Like, I tell people I'm going to pray for them all the time. And I usually do, because that's my job. But my guess is that you don't. Right? Like, people say, will you pray for me? And you go, oh, sure. And then you go on through the grocery store and pick up your bread and go home, right? And it's gone. Or what I do sometimes, which is say, yeah, I'll pray for you. And that's a way of postponing having the actual discussion. Like somebody comes to you and they have a problem and they're upset and they need some help and you say, well, let's, I'll pray for you. I'm going to pray for you. And that's your way of saying, all right, I'm done with this conversation, <laughs> right? I'm done. I'm going to move on. So we use prayer sometimes as sort of a passive way of, um, of getting out of things that are difficult or not having to engage really with the problem that's there. But that's not what prayer really looks like. Prayer, when it's really true, when it's right, when it's there, leads us to be open to possibilities. Prayer, when we actually mean it, isn't about the words that we say. Prayer, when we actually mean it, isn't about whether we sit down and we say a prayer at our table at night. It's not about whether we're on our knees at our bedside. It's not about whether we pray for over dinner or whether we sit down and do a 10-minute litany of all the things that we need to pray about that night. That's not what prayer is. This new community, they learn 
that prayer as a community, as an act of communal decision-making, that prayer as the only criteria for decision-making is active, it's difficult, it's challenging, it's creative, it opens them up to possibilities they didn't know existed. Prayer, when it works, slows us down long enough to listen to God and not to ourselves. True prayer, true community, true discernment in the process of being open to God is difficult. It hurts. It's challenging. It requires from us humility to admit that we are not the ones in control. That we don't get to make the decisions. We don't get to make the choices. We don't get to set up the boundaries for what's acceptable to God and what isn't acceptable to God. All we get to do is listen. All we get to do is listen to the voice of God and to be open to the possibilities of God speaking a new word into our hearts. They learn that when they shut themselves off, when they close themselves in, when they rely only on human judgment, that they are lost. Prayer is an attitude. Prayer is a way of life. It's a way of being. It's a way of being open to God at all times. And so whether or not you sit down at the table and say your list of prayers isn't anything to do with whether you have a prayer life. Prayer is an attitude, and it requires us to be humble, and it requires us to be honest, and it requires, it requires us to doubt that we have the answer, that we know the truth exclusively. A life of prayer is about being prayer. It's about having an attitude that says we are open to God and what God leads us towards, even when that makes us uncomfortable, or even when we don't like the answer that God gives us. It reminds us that the process is more important than the decision. Prayer isn't about the answer. It's not about whether God says yes or no or not yet, or whether God says anything at all. Prayer is about us having the right attitude, the right heart, and the ability to be open to God's creativeness in our lives. It's not about the words we say. It doesn't matter if we speak in any language at all. It doesn't matter if we're using words. It doesn't matter if we use our hands or our bodies or our voices or our hands or our crayons or whatever it is that we're using that day to pray. It's about our attitude and our ability to listen to one another and to God. And that's what the disciples learned. that they couldn't fill the hole with human ideas, with human rules, with human structures. They had to fill the hole with God. And the only way to do that was to pray all the time. All the time.